Well, Derek, you guys have a car at the uh, Corvette Museum that I, I actually used to own. And really? that was Arcus Duntov J2 Allard. Oh, yeah. Well, it's no longer at the museum. That was a loan. That car was on loan to the museum back in the day. Oh, OK. Uh, but I do know the owner um, up in, in Michigan. I sold the car to uh, Steve Forstall, who unfortunately passed away. And he sold it, I guess, to whoever has it now, who apparently did the restoration on it. Yeah, that car will likely come back to the museum, hopefully within the next few years, for example. Excellent. Yeah, I can I can tell you some fun stories about the acquisition of that car. Oh, nice! Did you get it? A rattlesnake. Oh, very nice. I have I have rattlesnake acquisition stories myself. <laughs> Is that kind of a barn find thing to harken back? We we had Tom Cotter on last week, and <laughs> it was more of a field find. I have a rattlesnake living under the hood of one of the ex Talladega cars that we've got in a barn over at the race shop. Ouch! We yeah, we don't get anywhere near it anymore. That's seriously scary. That car that car is now owned by the rattlesnake. <laughs> Fortunately, I just have garden snakes here. So the gardens or garden snakes, yeah, no. Uh rat snakes here. So oh, they okay. don't, they're not poisonous, so I just chase them off. Well, garter snakes actually are. Most people don't know that, but they don't have any teeth. Yeah, so. well, no, no, not uh, rat snakes. We have rat snakes. Yeah, okay. That's yeah, a little different. They're constrictors. They'll just wrap around your arm and try to squeeze you and you laugh at them. I'm going to touch on, I said Tom Cotter, and uh, as Sean and I concluded the interview with him in the last episode, you can go back and check it out. He was talking about a certain Volkswagen he used to own that he sold to a friend and had been thinking about going back and making an offer. Uh, Latest news is he is making an offer. Don't know. I don't know if we stirred up that uh, thing for him to walk down the the street. The Type 2? The cab and a half. Yeah, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he had it, and it was oh, in perfect yeah. condition. He said he sold it to a buddy. Uh, the buddy parked it in his backyard, and it's never moved, and it's been there 20-some years, slowly oh. sinking into the ground. And, of wow. course, he said the Ow. the asking price was more than the sale price, and it's literally half the vehicle. But Getting Half the vehicle, double the price. Well, the sixty-two, yeah. I, the sixty-two type two I had was an unintended rat ride. Basically, it ran, but it looked like death, and that would be a twenty-five thousand dollars vehicle if I still had it today. Like it's type two, bring crazy money. Well, I'm going to surprise everybody and say that you've heard a lot of a, a little pre-show there. I'm going to edit just a little bit, but I think most of that's of interesting conversation for everybody. But it's no driving gloves again. Um, I think you've heard a couple of familiar voices and Derek and Sean and, of course, John, myself. And we have Jim Simpson of Simpson Design joining us this after or this evening, I guess. Jim's a guy that I, I've, I've followed literally for years and years from some of his original uh, Miata creations, as I would say. I don't know, in the last year or so, following him on a couple of different Facebook pages and that, kind of learning more and more about him and i just had to have him on the show to learn about his crazy mind and his things for design but we're going to let jim give us a couple minute um talk about who he is and we'll see where this uh conversation leads us to jim it's yours well for what it's worth i'll actually be 65 years old this week and you're going to get to do the math along with your the people watching the podcast i actually started working on cars i had my very first job professionally working on cars working at a gas station as a mechanic when I was 13 years old. 
I was in school, of course, but, you know, it was primarily a, an evening and weekend job. Child labor laws weren't what they are now back then. So and I've been at it for kind of a long time. Something we touch on. That's how all of us on the show, and I think that's how all car people 30, 35 and above remember is starting in the gas station, tinkering and sure. uh, as, as kind of a job and doing that. And we've talked on the show and we won't get into it much that I think kids are doing the same thing, but they're just building and working on the cars on video games now. So, Yeah. And actually, that's something that uh, that's actually very cool. But I'll, I'll touch on that a little later. I went from there uh, to taking General Motors uh, sponsored auto shop in high school in Houston. As I was doing that, I also started a formal European two-and-a-half-year apprenticeship. In fact, I still had my notebooks and stuff from that. The guys that I worked under uh, for that was a fellow by the name of Hermann Krause and Hasso Schroeder. And, of course, the, the, the very inappropriate joke from back in the day so that I could remember it was Krause the Kraut and Schroeder the Swede. It works. Hermann actually had worked for Mercedes and had been a factory rep uh, for Mercedes and Paso had worked with Volvo and Saab and then ultimately wound up coming over to the U.S. managing a bottle manufacturing plant or bottling plant, I should say. Anyway, uh, from there, uh, I went on to serve a two-year Ferrari apprenticeship under Sid Simpson, who was no relation. Uh, Sid was kind of the unofficial mid-states Ferrari distributor. Uh, most of the cars that uh, Sid sold came out of Modern Classics, which was actually in Reno, uh, which was owned at the time by uh, Bill, uh, Bill Hara. Of course, a lot of people will remember the, the Harrah's Automobile Museums. Uh, some people will even remember uh, some of the projects that he got involved with, uh, including the Momo Mirage, which I'm not sure if he actually helped fund that or he was just going to be the dealer for it, but that be that as it may. After, after serving my Ferrari apprenticeship, continued to work on Ferraris for quite a while. And my hair was considerably longer then, and I had the beard early on. And my moniker was the hippie Ferrari mechanic. I used to have a lot of fun. People would bring their Ferraris into me. And if it was a first-time customer, when they'd come to pick their car up, I would generally say something real smart alecky like, uh, gee, thanks for letting me learn on your car. Of course, that always just elicited all kinds of, you know, confidence in the, uh, in the poor people, you know, picking up their car. But I had a fairly perverse sense of humor then and, and still do for that matter. From there, went on to, uh, if I had known about Art Center in California, I would have moved heaven and hell to go there. Uh, my parents were school teachers. And actually, they were amazingly supportive of my doing car-related things because they finally figured out at some point that I was probably not going to take an academic path. Uh, although I did go to college for a couple of years and was going to be a, a mechanical engineer until I realized that meant I was going to get to do stuff that was really not my interest whatsoever. And I really wanted to design cars. And so I consumed every piece of information from just about everywhere I could find it, uh, learning about mostly European cars, which I had a, a greater fascination for. And, of course, a lot of the master designers uh, in Europe as well. So a lot of my influences over the years uh, have come from that. For the most part, I've been in business for myself, although I spent almost a year while I still had my own business uh, being the service manager for Star Motor Cars down in Houston, 
which actually is the oldest Mercedes-Benz dealership in the country. They also had Aston Martin, Saab, and Volvo. And I oversaw the Aston Martin and Saab side of the, of the dealership as the service manager. I was very much a hands-on guy. The, the owner of the dealership raced a Lotus back in the day. Dave Portlock and I actually uh, built his car and kept it race ready for him in his race shop, which was there at the dealership. Very well-to-do gentleman who owned the dealership. The dealership was actually a gift from his father when he graduated from law school. Oh, the that, guy has a, nice literally a photographic yeah. camera. Yeah, that's that's not a bad present at all for graduating. Uh, no, not at all. But very wealthy family. Anyway, that's that's kind of a long story. Uh, I worked for him for almost a year. Like I said, while well, I still had my own facility. I finally got to the point where I was enjoying the job so much that I was pretty much drinking my lunch every day. It's the only way I could face going back in the afternoon. And uh, on my birthday, I went in and told the owner, who I actually like very much to this day, uh, that I was going to do something nice for my birthday. And he said, yes, what's that? I said, I'm going to quit. Uh, and I did. From there, went back to doing my own thing. A few years later, I uh, got involved in some other interesting projects. I, I had done a lot of sports cars over the course of time, restorations primarily. But there was the occasional time when we actually got to build cars for people as well, sports cars. Uh, started out, you know, kind of humbly doing custom Saab Sonics. Uh, there's a obscure enough car for you. and but That's um, not custom enough on its own. Yeah, like that's not strange <laughs> enough by right. itself. When you're looking for niche markets... Yeah, boy. How, how does that's one go true. about customizing a Saab Sonnet? Well, generally, you take a car that's been wrecked and then you, you know, modify it. Well, the Sonnet was okay. a was that a fiberglass car anyway, or? Yeah, uh, the interesting thing about the Sonnet, uh, just to give you a little background on Saab, when they would build, they built about ten thousand Sonnets all together. I've even actually worked on one of the pre-production convertibles uh, a couple of times at car shows, and. Uh, have been very much involved in the Concours world for, for many, many years, too. One of the things that would happen is Saab would literally decide that it was time to build more Sonics. And they would literally shut down the production line, and they'd say, okay, we're going to build Sonics now. And they would build however many Sonics they could build over however many days they determined that they were going to build Sonics. And so that's ultimately how the roughly 10,000 Sonics got built over the course of well, from 66 through 74, so roughly an eight-year period. Uh, cool I still car. have a Sonnet too in my collection, which I actually had in high school. So that's just uh, kind of an interesting business model to go with. We'll, we'll stop making, at, what would that be, 96s and 99s at the time? Actually, 96s, 95s, and then, of course, the Sonnet was the 97. And then ultimately they would, they started early on in the seventies, making the 99s, which actually were pretty interesting cars, despite the, uh, basically the triumph motor. Uh, I really want to know the 99 or the 900, man. I love those cars. But the the 99 actually had the triumph motor and then the 900 actually was still that bottom end, but Saab developed their own cylinder head for it. Uh, the downside was, is the water pump literally sat underneath the intake manifold and was gear driven. And replacing or repairing a water pump, you rebuilt a water pump. You didn't. You didn't put a water pump on. You didn't just bolt on a water pump. That was but you had to tear down the basically not the whole top end, but you had to tear the top of the motor. You had to take the intake manifold yeah. off to get to it. Wonderful. Uh, that was that was modified by at least 
or mollified at least by the fact that doing a clutch job on a 99 was actually a very simple process. You pull the radiator, you took the input shaft out and basically changed the clutch pack out and put everything back in. So you could actually do a clutch job in, in about an hour. Wow. It was actually very nice. Part of the Achilles heel there was the gear setup that went from the output shaft down into the transmission. And they were forever wearing out the gear sets as well. So that was something that also had to be uh, extracted and changed. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of that. Although I did spend an awful lot of time working on the three-cylinder, two-cycle, and V4 cars. I was one of the few guys in a three-state area that actually would work on them. And in fact, I still have my factory transmission rebuilding jig. Uh, oh, my God. Those. Later on, uh, as I became more involved in other Italian cars, I became kind of the Lancia King. And we actually have probably restored and worked on more launches than anybody else in the United States. And I'm talking about pre-Fiat launches, everything from basically Aprilia's on up through the Flaminia's and then later on, even into the, the Fulvia's and Flavia's and which my favorite of the launches happens to be the Fulvia. In fact, I'm, I'm in the middle of rebuilding an engine in my old Zagato at the moment, cool which stuff. hasn't moved under its own power in 24 years. But that's another very long story. Wound up also doing some various interesting things. I got hooked up with a, a gentleman that I met at a car show in Houston, Kevin Hines, who owns a company called Special Editions. And a lot of people uh, may know the Beck Spider. Mm, yeah, uh, Kevin and Chuck Beck were partners, and Kevin and I eventually wound up becoming partners. I wound up, He was also the importer for Puma, and I literally bought out all of the remaining inventory of Pumas that he had and became kind of the Puma King very briefly. And then ultimately we wound up becoming partners. And then eventually Chuck and Kevin and I all three wound up being business partners. And there was a period at which, uh, because we were still building cars in Brazil, we were doing 356 recreations, uh, ultimately speedster recreations. Then of course the 550 Spider. And uh, there was a period at which I had actually put together more of the 550 Spiders than anybody else in the United States other than Chuck and his son, Randy. And I Chuck thought you were going to say you, you, you had assembled more than Porsche. Probably, probably is, yeah. probably is yeah, true, yeah. too. I may have and driven a couple of your cars, actually, when I was with Porsche. I used to travel all over the country, and we'd go to launch events, basically, at dealerships, and everybody would bring out whatever sure. cool toys they had in the garage. And as the Porsche Sport Driving School representative that was running the show for, for everything, everybody was like, will you drive it? Will you? Yes. Yes, I will. I'll drive whatever you want me to drive. It's not a problem. And it more than a couple Beck cars showed up with some very hot drive lines in them. They're, uh, they're very sophisticated cars. Very it few people are capable car. of driving one of those cars at 10 tenths. <laughs> I'll give it my best. My, <laughs> Not uh, a problem. My personal demo had a 2160cc motor in it, making yeah. a little over 175 horsepower. It was a, yeah. a motor that CB Performance built. They built most of our motors for us, starting with brand new BW Motorsport cases. I finally wound up changing it out and putting a 1915 back in it at only 125 horsepower. Well, you got a car that weighs 1,250 pounds wet. Right. I mean, yeah. the horsepower to weight ratio is fierce. Yeah, yeah, they were fun. They were lots of fun. I, the best one that I ever did was, oh God, we had we got to go. Um, it was in Northern California. Can't remember the canyon that we were going through, but it was a long canyon test drive. 
And I had a line of brand new Panameras behind me oh, at wow. the time. And then I'm leading the caravan <laughs> in a back car. <laughs> the guy was like, I really want you to drive it. I want your opinion on it. I was like, okay. Not a well, problem. I hope there was a yet. period in there where you stood on it because times. nobody would have been able to touch you. Yeah, a couple times. A couple times. It, it's um, big grins. Big I grins. used to go out looking for guys in 911s and 944 turbos to dust. To make, make them feel bad. Yep. And Lots then they pull fun, up man. to you at a stoplight and go, what the hell's in that thing? You go, it's a VW motor. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a 1776 CC. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Lots of fun, man. Lots so of fun. Absolutely. It's, it's cool. I had no idea you were involved in that. Learned yeah, something so every anyway, day. We did that for a number of years. Yeah, so uh, what year are we up to by now? Are we looking 75, 80, 85? Yeah, we're in the 80s. That's what I was. We're in the 80s. Because uh, I, I want to say, I, I mean, remember I, when Puma kind of shut down and... Did they have an ad or something either in Hemmings or Auto Week or something selling the company? I, I can't remember. Yeah, they could have. Although the Brazilian government basically shut the company down. Yeah, for some uh, reason, I remember is, seeing a bunch of that stuff for sale. Uh, you know, that was back when I was a teenager. And I, you know, always fantasize, you know, get a Puma or, you know, that's when I got into kit cars and Bradley GTs and things like that. And I was just the Pumas are actually neat cars. I've always liked them, and, and they're pretty much a unique design. I mean, they they are two forty six Dino ish, but they sure. but you know they kind of are their own. I mean, it's it's a GTO to a Ferrari GTO to a two forty Z difference in styling. I mean, there's well, a lot. Well, if you of look confused. at the real early uh, after you get past the Malzonis, which were front wheel drive and DKW powered. Uh, and you go to the rear engine cars, the first of the Pumas basically took a lot of their styling cues from a 275 GTB Ferrari. The guy that actually designed the body, it was Brazilian, but he was from Italian descent. So, I mean, you know, there, there's actually kind of some legitimacy in the way the cars were designed back then. But, you know, that was that was kind of a fun period. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about the way that Pumas were built Literally in the factory, they would literally roll a brand new complete chassis into the jig where it would be clamped. And they would literally make two cuts across the chassis and slide the jig together and weld weld the chassis together to get the short wheelbase. And that's how the Pumas were built. And were they built, If my, I'm trying to remember, my memory says they were built out of whole Vols Brazilian Volkswagen. The Puma factory yeah. had whole Volkswagen delivered. That's... You popped the body off and then it went it wasn't that they got a, they were buying just pans from Volkswagen. They were No, they were them. buying complete pans from full, you know fully mechanical uh fitted and you know with wheels on them. You know, I mean they were basically just throwaway wheels that would go back to the factory, but they were literally buying brand new chassis from the factory. What we call the Beetle was called the Fusca down there. And they built and, those uh, till when in Brazil? Was that, maybe you don't know, uh, but 2000, uh, something like that? Didn't those continue on? I know they continued on much longer than here, but Brazil was the last country producing new Volkswagen Beetles, I remember, right? Yeah, it was either Brazil or it was Mexico, one or the other. It was um, Mexico. It was like 2001, was Mexico, yeah. 2001, 2002, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Interestingly enough, Pumas uh, were also produced for a while in South Africa after the plant had closed in Brazil. So a lot of the, a lot of the European sold Pumas were actually made in uh, South Africa. I wonder if they had anything to do with early Superformance days or 
No, I don't think so. No. I think this predates Superformance. Gotcha. It's kind of weird to me, the little uh, South Africa thing, because um, I had a Brunton Stalker uh, kit back in 2001, 2002. It was the 19th, 19th chassis he built, and they're well into wow. the, well into the hundreds now, and you know, Dennis has passed away. But he was South African, and you got Superformance down there that's South African, and isn't Kirkham an African company? And you just never think I of think Africa, so. Africa as being a car-producing comp- country, but they build some pretty cool niche vehicles and, and with some great quality. You know, it's just most of the Series Three Lamborghini Espadas were produced in South Africa as well. Now a lot of people don't realize that. I had no idea. I would have no idea. I'd say I had no idea they were. I'm a, a spot a fan, but I've never dove deep into them. So we're the, here. The in series th- three cars are not a bright point. <laughs> well, the Espada ne- never really was, and I think their popularity now is they like the Mondial Ferrari. They were the cheapest, and they've kind of creeped up, and it's almost worth yeah. worth rebuilding a motor in them now. Where you know, year, a couple well, of years is. ago they were twenty grand, and you know you can't rebuild a, a V12 Lamborghini for twenty grand. So the cars were scrapped. unless you happen to own a shop and can do it yourself. <laughs> I think you're still pushing it then, <laughs> but you know, no, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've owned a number of Espadas. I've actually had a number of Haramas. Had one Mira. Uh, and had one Islero, 6201, which actually was Ferruccio Lamborghini's personal car. Yeah. In fact, I still have a, a copy of the letter and a copy of the title of the, from, from having owned that car for a number of years. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to me that the significant cars you've had over the years, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask, because you've had a you know, a pretty reasonable number of Ferraris and Lamborghinis, but you also sure. dive deep into Alfa Romeo, and Sean and yep. I have a, a close friend that's uh, deep into Alphas too, but not the Zagato-bodied Alphas and things that you get into. And then you, you know, there's some, and you're into these anomaly things. So it's, uh, is it, you've stumbled across the right things or been there on the right, you know, dates. That's because, been a lot of it. Yeah. yeah, that's been a lot of it. Um, one of the things that actually uh, enabled me to buy a bunch of the cars that I have now, uh, was actually selling the two Nardi Blu-rays. And you've got a picture of Blu-ray three, which I designed and developed behind you. And that actually is a steel body, by the way. Uh, and one of the things I really love people, and this is, this is off. We're going out in the bushes here again. One of the things that people oftentimes will say, they go, oh, it's fiberglass. And they kind of dismiss it like, and one of the things I love doing for people in my shop that when they come into my shop and see cars, they go, oh, it's fiberglass. And I go, really? Well, hang on a second. And I go grab a gallon of of fiberglass resin and I grab some cloth and some mat and give them a brush and go, make me a fender if it's so (laughs) Right, right. Make me a fender. Actually, make me a right side of the car. Yeah, and now now go make me a left side of the car that mirrors it. Perfectly. Yeah, make it factory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have a have a nice time. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Making one side's easy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, you know to to kind of get off into that for a moment. One of the things that I have done for years. I'm actually very good at, at laminating, but I don't really enjoy doing it. And frankly, I learned most of what I know about laminating from Chuck Beck. Uh, even though I had done fiberglass uh, work on the on the sonnets years earlier, but I learned from Chuck Beck that 
resin is actually the enemy in fiberglass. The, the trick is you want parts that are as resin free as possible. So you want thin parts uh, that have, you squeegee the resin out of them as you're laying up the parts so that you have a nice, thin, really tight layup. Uh, and they're not as prone to cracking and warping and doing all the bad things that, you know, really heavy resin rich bodies do. Uh, and that includes some of the lotuses from the, you know, the late fifties up through the seventies for that matter. Uh, we were actually doing much better fiberglass work in this country with the Corvettes. So uh, Derek would certainly know a lot about that. And I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that necessarily with the very first ones, but after we got past those, we did okay. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, first, you know, we started 50, doing vacuum bagging. Yeah. 53, 54, 55 had that heavy resin issue yeah. and, and they solvent popped horribly because they painted them way too soon after they laid them up. Yep. And uh, they didn't understand curing. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And if my video was on, that was it. I was nodding my head that whole time, but um, yeah, my, my internet's so bad. I don't get to have video. So um, one of, one of those. we heard the rocks in your head bouncing around. So. Exactly. One of the things a lot of people don't realize about fiberglass is there's a process that's uh, again, that I learned about from Chuck Beck uh, called post curing. And if you can bring fiberglass up to a temperature higher than it ever has been, you can actually do a light bit of reshaping uh, and quench it and get it to hold its new shape. So you have to be a little careful doing that because if you get it too hot, obviously you destroy the fiberglass. But, mm -hmm. uh, there, there is a process by which if the parts are relatively speaking thin, you can actually get away with that. So, uh, Is that on new parts or can I find me a 74 Corvette and reshape, reshape a fender on it? You can up to a point. Uh, those cars are really uh, heavily. I'm using that as an age example, not necessarily. Yeah. Because really, a Corvette today isn't fiberglass as much as we joke about it. It's a composite of exactly. 8,000 different no, materials. Exactly. So. Yeah, they're very sophisticated. We uh, we actually had a, uh, a C6 in the shop uh, that I did a fender repair on uh, here a while back. And I had no idea that all that was carbon fiber. But it is mm -hmm. heavily, heavily use of carbon fiber. It requires some, some some pretty sophisticated workmanship in order to be able to actually effectively repair one of those. You can't just slap fiberglass on it; that doesn't work. Uh, so you know, yeah, it's you know, there's fiberglass and there's fiberglass. You know, there's a, a plethora of different resins. Um, the cars that we have done, a lot of the, the of what we're kind of famous for, and and. I kind of regret this in a way. Uh, I kind of became known as the Miata King. And the little car actually behind Sean is the Swift, of which I've actually built two of now. Uh, in fact, Chuck Beck was really excited when I told him what I was going to do and, you know, was very supportive of the idea of me doing it. And I said, well, basically, I'm going to try to build a Beck killer. And he laughed and said, yeah, good luck. <laughs> But he loved the car. He thought the car was really cool. And uh, just to, to throw a little specification at you on, the, on the, the car, the car basically is loosely designed after a Michelotti design, Lotus 11, that was done back in 1957. It was done as a one-off. It was an alloy-bodied car, uh, used a Coventry Climax engine in it, and weighed in just under 1,000 pounds. 
Well, our car weighs in just under 1,400 pounds. It's a scratch-built chassis. It's all Mazda Miata running gear with an emissions-legal motor in it. Well, the car has a basically 10-pound-per-horsepower weight ratio, and it earns its name Swift quite honestly. The car is very quick. 1.8 car? Is it one one eight powered one eight yeah uh, one, eight one, one eight generation yeah uh, and in fact my personal car which was the second one I built even has a six speed gearbox in it which is really kind of superfluous. Car's uh, beautiful. I, I don't have the stones to drive that car as fast as it's capable of going, and I actually do have a little bit of racing background too. I don't care where you're at. I have frequent flyer miles. I would great. I, I'm not Come afraid. To, I'm not afraid to use them. I'm just throwing that out there. Come on out. You'll it's, enjoy it. It's, it's not a, it's a big a car. Point. You can't sit six feet apart, but there you go. Uh, you have to take it out by yourself. Okay. That's all. Back, oh, no. back in the years when I was doing a lot of Ferraris, I had a 330 GTC that I actually used to club race. And uh, one of the things that most people didn't know back in those days was I actually built a cheater motor for it. Uh, Vinolia actually built a set of pistons to my specs and we set the thing up like a drag motor. So it did smoke a bit. Uh, but it was a nice loose motor and it also was built to 365 spec, even though it was a 330. And actually the factory built a few 330 GTCs that actually had 365 motors in them, uh, and were interim cars that a lot of people are not even aware existed. So there are actually a few of those cars out there. I think every manufacturer does that with certain cars and they slip out. I don't know whether it's kind of doing the uh, customer R&D or such, because if I remember right, I think it was Sean, who's my friend, had a, quote, cheater-type Mustang that was produced. They only built a few of with this. Yeah, yeah, really weird. Like, it it had, uh, it came from the factory 30 over with uh, 21-pound injectors instead of 19-pound injectors, and it was calibrated for the bigger injectors in it because they had a run of blocks. They had a run of five liter blocks that came to them out of spec. You know, there were a couple cylinders, a couple bores in each block that were a little out of spec. And there was a run of five liter Mustangs back in the late eighties that came from the factory as three Oh sixes. Wow. And it's, it's rare, but they called it a plus motor. I didn't find out about it until I went to work for Roush and uh, I went to work for Roush in the late nineties. And we were talking about it one day and all of a sudden this guy was like, Oh, you had a plus car. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, it's, it's a plus car. It, it, it was factory 30 over 21 pound injectors wow. and calibrated to run with that. And that car on a, on a short belt bypassed the AC on the Gatorbacks would run 1370s, 1380s. And back in 1988, that was freaking flying. And uh, like I had a friend that just got a Grand National and he was so mad because literally every time we'd push him through, I would be half a car length to a car length in front of him going through, you know, crossing the line at the end of a quarter mile. If he had another 30 feet, he had 10 mile an hour on me. If he had another 30 feet, gone. But, he didn't. Um, but yeah, but he was like, I don't understand how a stock Mustang, it was an LX notchback. He's like, it shouldn't be doing that. And I, was, I know it shouldn't, but it does. <laughs> Here's the I time slip. The I don't know what they did. I don't think they did. Not. I don't think they did. Um, but I, yeah, like John was saying, and you were saying, I mean, that how many times over the years have, has a manufacturer had something like that happen? And instead of just scrapping 
whatever it was, they just go, okay, well, we'll just do this and we'll do that. And all of a sudden you have what should have been a 225 horsepower car at the time was all of a sudden a 245 ish horsepower car. Um, and I think back on those days, I'm like 225 horsepower should not have been that quick in that car. For Yeah. That. No kidding. Um, well, I had one of those five liters in my, uh, one of my TBRs. Uh, nobody would go for a ride more than once. <laughs> That was a very potent, and that was just a two forty-five horse, you know, injected motor. But it was a very potent. That T, the TVR weighed what? About as uh, much. Probably as, somewhere in the fifteen, sixteen hundred pound range. As much as that ginger ale can, right there. There you go. <laughs> it, it really was quite potent, and I still have a, a TVR Vixen in my collection, but it's just got the little sixteen hundred crossflow Kent motor in it. That's still got to be fun. Kent motors rev there, man. Good lord. That's that's a neat little engine. Yeah, it's and that car does weigh sixteen hundred pounds with a sixteen hundred cc motor in it. Nice. And it's actually really fun to drive. I have to, I have to ask this just because we keep talking about we we you keep saying I have one in my collection. How many how many cars are in the current collection? Just out of curiosity, uh, it's over thirty. Okay, it's too many. Oh no, no, you're, you're good. You're good. <laughs> well, you're good. You're, you're, those words have never been uttered on. This no, show. you're good. You. If Jay Leno can do what he's done, 30 is nothing. Jay's a heck of a nice guy. Yeah, he is. Uh, I'll, I'll relate a fun Jay story for you. Uh, if you want to talk about cars and you meet him, you know, at the Concorso or at the racetrack uh, and you start talking cars with him, he'll stand there and talk cars with you for a pretty good while. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want his autograph, you kind of want you out of his face as quickly it's- as possible. Uh, but he's a total gearhead. He's a really, really neat guy. Uh, my son and I were actually at Pebble Beach a number of years ago and uh, showing a car. And, and I see Jay walking across the, the lawn, and he's got a launch of Flaminia hubcaps stuffed under his arm. And I hollered over and said, hey, Jay, what are you doing with that launch of Flaminia hubcap? And he looked over at me and went, you know, Jerry, you're, you're one of the few people that would know what the hell that is. And That's very good. Conversation that was not unusual and uh, had a lot of fun. We're going to have you back tomorrow when we're going to act like we're interviewing Jay Leno because that's a damn good <laughs> There you go. He's a really terrific guy. Uh, in fact, uh, he and Chuck Beck met under interesting circumstances. Chuck had the uh, the first Shogun, which was a little Ford Fiesta, oh, yeah. which had the SHO charge motor stuffed in it. Yeah. Mid-ship. And uh, Rick Titus was actually a little bit involved in that project. And uh, Chuck was out driving the car. Uh, coming back from, uh, I guess, Salinas, coming past uh, the turnoff for the racetrack. And uh, well, I, Chuck is not bashful when it comes to driving cars quickly. And apparently some guy in 911 got behind him. And so Chuck got into it. And the guy tried to stay up with him and couldn't. And eventually Chuck stopped at a gas station, having forgotten all about the guy in the 911. And the guy pulled in in the 911 and said, well, what the hell is in that thing? Turned out it was Jay Leno. Well, Chuck had no idea who Jay Leno was. Did he buy it from him or did he buy another one? He I bought another one. Okay. Uh, and he called That's me awesome. up and he said, who the hell is Jay Leno? And I'm like, <laughs> well, actually, it's funny you should ask that. Why are you asking? And He's the right guy to be paying attention to what you're doing. That's exactly. for sure. Exactly. So anyway, awesome. he and Chuck have actually become very good friends, and uh, and Chuck That's has awesome. seen him a number of times in, in various events and stuff. But no, he's a really cool guy, uh, and, and a total gearhead. Uh, one of the cars that Jay and I share in common 
uh, is we both have uh, Mazda Cosmo 110s. And I kind of bust Jay's chops about his because his has a 12A in it, which is a non-original motor, uh, whereas mine still has the uh, the 10A in it. And uh, that's old. Very neat cars. I mean, his is quicker than mine because it has a has a more powerful engine in it, obviously. And they were very careful when they modified that car to put the 12A in it, uh, so that you know everything could be reversed. And you know, I give him total credit for that because a lot of people wouldn't have cared, and most people looking at it wouldn't know unless they actually looked at the numbers on the on the rotor. And if it was me, I'd be like, I think we can get a 20B in there. I, yeah, absolutely. I think we could. Can we get a 20? How about four rotor? Will a four rotor fit? Yeah, I think so. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> I don't really think there's enough room in there to actually put the later three rotor Cosmo in there. Well, Jim, I, I hear you're pretty good at uh, at bodywork. Um, we could extend the nose and we could. Uh, sure. <laughs> I think we can make it work. We could make hey, it a hey, long hey. base. Two rotors are enough. I mean, Corvette yeah. proved that back in the 70s. I mean, they did a four rotor too, but they took that out and put a V8 in. And the two rotor still has a two rotor in it. So. Yeah, and I think the four rotor was actually done by Downing Atlanta. I don't think it was actually done at Monster. Downing, Downing yeah. actually did that. Yeah, Jim's done some amazing stuff over the years. Yeah, surprised me. Another really neat guy. Spent a little bit of time with him at Petit Le Mans. You know, so you, you know Jim well? Not real well. Not I mean, well, okay. we, we've talked a number of times on okay. the phone. You know, we're. It's always been very cordial, but I've never actually met him in person. I got uh, to meet him at Petite a couple of times. And, and oh, cool. Really, really good dude. And Seems gosh, like it. Yeah, really good dude. And everybody was scared of his cars at Petite. I, I mean, it's the only car that's literally blowing an eight-foot flame out the back of it on every upshift and downshift. And you would literally see cars in the downhill to 10A at Road Atlanta. Cars would pull out from behind him. Just to they were worried. Get, yeah, to not get their yeah. bumpers melted. And they're, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, and I believe, so. unless memory fails me, uh, I did some work for Mazda for a while as an independent designer. Uh, this was back in the early 90s. And in fact, the uh, car that's behind you there, Sean, the picture that's behind you, was actually the very first uh, of the Italias. And originally started out life as a convertible. And uh, I actually loaned it to one of my buddies at Mazda and sent it down to California, and he was driving the car. And the car was actually a, 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 a Miata that uh, the factory gave me. It was actually a 94. It was one of the first 1800s. And, uh, and, you know, it was actually the second Miata that they gave me. The first one that they gave me was the one that we – was actually a 1600. And when I asked them what they wanted me to do with it, they said, well, you're the designer. Do something. Try to not get negative ink, and we'll see where it goes. And by the way, bring it to Monterey and, you know, put it in uh, our booth at the uh, racetrack, which I did, uh, not knowing that that was uh, that at the time I didn't know that they had done a Ferrari tribute car, which basically was a Miata that had a cut down windshield and some graphics and a uh, basically graphic side louvers and uh, an egg crate grill and some wire wheels and stuff. And. Uh, I showed up with this little miniature kind of Daytona looking thing and they put it next to their car after the Saturday was over. They rolled their car into the trailer and left mine sitting there. Uh, and it was like, well, there was a career limiting move. Um, cause I had no idea what they were doing. Right. 
yeah. was it career limiting or was it flattering? I mean, did no, it actually it actually turned out not to be career limiting because right shortly after I got back, uh, they went. Well, actually, I guess it was it was a, about a year later they sent the uh, the car that's behind you that was actually a '94. Uh, and I said, well, what do you want me to do with this? And they said, why don't you develop some accessories? And I went, okay. So we developed a line of accessories uh, for the Miata. And then one thing led to another, and I got bored. And so I did the first Italia body, and that was the first Italia convertible. And after I let my buddy at Mazda borrow it, he was driving the car, and one thing led to another. Yeah, that's the same car in convertible form. And uh, he was driving the car, and a guy ran a red light and broadsided the car, literally punched the passenger side A pillar about eight inches into the firewall. Oh. And basically, the car was it was a total. Uh, and one thing led to another, and there was no insurance coverage on the car. And he called me up sheepishly and told me what happened. And one thing led to another. And I eventually had the car brought back up to Washington State. And I spent a little time putting the car on a frame table up at another shop and uh, wound up getting offered a job at the shop where I used the frame table, which I politely declined. And eventually decided, you know what, I've, I've always wanted a coupe version of this car. And so built the first GTB, which is, that's the, that's the car. Can so, you, see, can you uh, see it full screen right now? Can you see it or no? Yeah. Actually, what yeah, you've, got got is you've got the Simpson design page on and you've got a couple of cars showing, which is fine. Yeah. I can't find a, uh, a standalone, but I, yeah, I just wanted to pull up the, the hard top yeah, so folks yeah, can see it while you were talking about it. Yeah, and and I still have beautiful. a car. In fact, it's, it's one that's going to get pulled in after I finish doing the full Zagato, and I'm going to freshen the car back up again because I miss driving it. When you built that, is that a permanent hard top on it? Because before, yeah, it is. You know, so before you called in, we were actually talking to Derek. He's an old Solstice owner, and somebody on one of the fiberglass pages is selling out his final inventory of the uh, um, shooting brake roofs for it. And I was wondering if that was oh, interesting. So, interesting. Yeah, I don't even know who that is. Yeah. I can probably dig it up. I'll I'll send you send you that so you can at least see it. The uh, the bottom picture that's uh, behind John at the moment is actually Blu-ray three, but we did a uh, we did a Miata called the Manta Ray, and uh, there you go. Uh, and the Manta Ray actually is a car that we did after Blu-ray three. I actually bought the uh, prototype C package from Mazda, and uh, that's actually a sixteen hundred car but it was the prototype C package car that was sitting down in the basement at Mazda uh, under the, the design center in Irvine. And uh, one thing led to another. And basically I cut the car up, and modified it and turned it into the Manta Ray. And that frankly is the Blu-ray three that should have been, uh, that's what I should have done. But uh, it, when I did the car originally, I painted it Ferrari yellow because I didn't want people saying, Oh, it's Blu-ray four. Um, for, for those of you that are Star Trek fans, you may recall mm -hmm. Leonard Nimoy at one point wrote a book called I Am Not Spock. Mm -hmm. uh, and then eventually he came out with another book that said I Am Spock. So <laughs> you know, I, I kind of embraced the fact that, yeah, actually it, uh, it probably should have been the Blu-ray 4. Uh, and well, I'm taking the car back in a couple of weeks before taking it down to Monterey for one of the Pebble Beach festivity weekends and uh, repainted the car uh, in blue-ray colors. And then my son and I drove it down to Monterey. 
you made a statement a little bit earlier that you said, unfortunately, or to, to me, I took it as you were thinking it's a negative uh, connotation that you've become known as the Miata guy. But yeah, you're, you're, and, you're, you know, and, you're probably the only guy, though, that gets to put Miatas on the field, you know, at Pebble Beach. I, I'm not thinking that's a huge <coughs> category at Pebble. Yeah, not so much. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting thing. They, and the, the God's honest truth is they've never actually been on the field at Pebble Beach, but they have been at the Concorso Italiano. Uh, in fact, when, when we first did the Miami Roadster, which basically looked an awful lot like a miniature Daytona, although it was stylized. And I did that intentionally because I didn't want it to be a replica. And we knew that Ferrari at the time was, you know, uh, being very litigious about people doing cars that were replicas which most of them weren't anyway, uh, and we're going after people. And we knew that if we did this Miata and I did this body uh, that, you know, resembled, uh, and we called it the Miami Roadster, you know, it was very tongue-in-cheek after Miami Vice. Uh, and we even did a, you know, a special set of decals and everything to go on the car. And we took it down to California to Monterey for the, uh, for, it was basically a Ferrari weekend. And Ferrari was the featured mark of the Concorso that year. And we literally got permission and parked the car next to a real Daytona Spider uh, at the Concorso. And I knew at the time that one of two things was going to happen. It was either going to get people's panties all in a knot and they were going to get all pissed off about it. Or they were going to go, oh, God, that's cute, which was the response I was looking for. I knew if they went, oh, that's cute, that we probably wouldn't get sued. So, you know, the overwhelming response was, oh, my God, that's cute. Look at that. It's a baby Daytona. Have you ever gotten a, a cease and desist for, for, getting, a, for getting too close, just out of curiosity? We had one point at which, this is back when we were in Houston, uh, we were doing a car that we wound up calling the Rhino GT. And basically, I bought all the tooling from Tom McBurney, the Datsun Z car project that he had done. Uh, to make them uh, basically kind of like a, a 250 GTO-ish looking car. And what I used to tell people, people would say, oh, it's a, it's a perfect replica. I said, no, at best it's a resemblance. Uh, the wheelbase is too short. The overhang on the front is too long. Uh, anybody that knows cars at all is going to look at the center section of the car and realize that it's a 240Z or a 260 or 280. And uh, we built 53 of those cars. And we had the car at uh, the Carlisle show and I got interviewed uh, by somebody from auto week magazine and, and they, they did a nice feature on the car. And uh, one of the questions I got was, are you worried about getting sued by Ferrari? And my comment, which got posted in the, in the magazine article was let's just say I'm a huge coward. And if Ferrari wants to get their panties in a knot and, and they want to sue me over the car, my livelihood doesn't depend on this. I'll quit in a heartbeat. I don't honestly care if I don't build another one. It doesn't matter to me one way right. or another. And we did get a call from a guy at one point, and oh, he kept going on and on and on about what an absolutely perfect replica it was, and and could we put Ferrari badges on it for him and all that? And I said, no, honestly, no, we can't, no. <laughs> but we won't because that's called trademark infringement. Right. And I said, if you want to go out and buy Chevrolet badges or BMW badges and bolt them on the car yourself, that's up to you. But when you go to sell the car, if somebody decides that you've tried to pull the wool over their eyes, I said, you're going to get sued for, you know, basically uh, fraud. 
And I said, and that's something we won't engage in. So I said, we're not interested in doing it. He said, no, but but it, but you could make it perfect. And I said, no, it'll never be perfect. It's it, you know, it, it doesn't even come close. Did, um, didn't want to, don't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to, don't want to. And I mean, you know, and all the cars that we've done on Miatas uh, have at best captured the feel and flavor of a lot of our favorite cars. Uh, it, one of the things I love is, as people looked at the uh, uh, Manta Ray at shows, and I would have people say, oh, God, I see 69 Camaro in the rear fender. And I'd go, okay. Other see, people would look at the will, Italian yeah. and go, oh, my God, it looks just like an Opal GT. That's, okay. I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm looking at the Italia too right now. And that, that might be my favorite one of the, of the bunch. And well, thank I, you. It is mine as well. In fact, if you go to the Italia two on the uh, website and you pull up the GTC, uh, that was a car that I actually built for myself. Uh, and the influence for that design was actually a car that I worked on during my Ferrari apprenticeship. That was a 330 GTC that Pininfarina built for Princess Liliana de Rethi of Belgium. And, uh, yeah, if you go to, uh, there it is, you'll see it in blue. You, you'll see the cove rear window. Okay. A lot of people look at it and go, oh, it, it's kind of a, a front-engine Dino. Well, no, actually it's not. Uh, the influence of the design, and I was actually on my way back from Monterey driving my truck and trailer and, and I had about 15 hours to think about what I might want to do next. I used to, I used to lovingly say that, you know, part of the best part about going to Monterey is I get to spend time with somebody I really enjoy spending time with me and <laughs> thinking about projects and what I might want to do next. And so, so you've been self quarantining for how many years? Yeah, for a lot, actually. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the GTC, uh, my favorite Ferrari during my Ferrari apprenticeship days uh, was a car that at the time belonged to a heart surgeon in Houston, uh, Dr. DeBakey. And Michael DeBakey was Princess Liliana Dorethy's heart surgeon, as it turned out. And she so loved her 330 GTC that Pininfarina built for her that she commissioned one uh, for Dr. DeBakey and gave it to him as a gift. Uh, during my Ferrari apprenticeship, he would literally send the car into Simpson Automobile by truck, never met the man in person, uh, although we, we also worked on Dr. Cooley's cars as well, and he was a very nice man and actually came in to, to pick up his own Ferrari when we would do work on it. But uh, Dr. DeBakey's car would show up on a truck, we'd repair the car and send it back on a truck. Uh, but I love that car, and eventually it got bought out by an architect in Houston, uh, Robert Shire, who owned the car for a number of years, too. So I actually got to spend a lot of time driving that car. But that was absolutely my favorite Ferrari of the time. And I kind of never forgot about it. And it also was done in a dark metallic blue. So when it came time for, I decided, you know, I, I got to thinking about it on the way back. I thought, God, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to build one for myself. I don't care whether anybody else wants one or not. And uh, one of the things that, that's fun, and, and it, it won't show up on the Simpson design page, I don't think, but uh, I did all the original design work on that car in steel. And building that roof uh, was one of the most difficult things I ever undertook uh, so that we could ultimately wind up making it in composite. And I still have the steel roof that I built that I took over to the fiberglass guys and said, So you could build me one. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have That's all awesome. the tooling and everything to do that project. I, I wish 
I wish that I had the ability to say, do it. I, I, I just, do it. I find that car apps, it's, it's captivating, but it's captivating. Obviously everybody has their reasons why something sure. catches their eye. Uh, I see the Ferrari in it. There's no, there's undeniable amounts of Ferrari in it, but from the right front three quarter view, it looks like Alpine kind sure. of got a little bit. It just, it's the dip of the nose. Sure. There's, a, there's some a one ten in there and sure. it's just like, which was it, actually a Michelotti design. It, as soon as I saw that, that car for the first time though, I was like, Ooh, it's, it's got a little bit of everything that I love. And I actually have goosebumps right now. So <laughs> just talking about it. It's yeah. It's, it's one of those cars that I'm like, Oh yeah, I could, I could, I could own that. It's if you go back to the, uh, the original Italia convertible, uh, and you can find a front view of it. Hopefully you can. Let me see um, if I can. The inspiration for that car was actually a 275 NART Spider. And the very first place I ever showed that car was at the Greenwich Concours. I had a booth, and I was actually the, uh, the, the chief Ferrari judge for a number of years at Greenwich. Uh, Bruce Winterstrom, who was one of the founding fathers of the uh, – uh, go back to the uh, – just the straight Italia, get out of the Italia too. Uh, Cause it was done actually on the. You're talking the Italia classic, right? Yeah. Italia classic. There you go. Um, yeah, there you go. You can see the front end there. And the inspiration for that design was actually the Nart spider, which is mm -hmm. one of my all time favorite Ferraris as well. And a guy came up to me at Greenwich where I was showing the car and proceeded to say, I designed that car. And I said, really? How fascinating. <laughs> and I said, the guy that designed that car originally, that the inspiration of this car was taken from, would have been Coco Canetti. Uh, and it was the Nart Spider. And he said, I am Coco Canetti. He oh, my said, God. <laughs> I hate that name. He said, it's actually Luigi Jr. And I said, sure you are. I didn't believe him. No, it turned out it actually was. Wow. And he and I became friends. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the inspiration of that car actually belongs to Luigi uh, Canetti for having done the Nart Spider. The world is amazing. Right, nine Nart Spiders built. That's yeah. very, it's just, it's cool where we pull inspiration from. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, I mean, most of the stuff that, that we're seeing on the Simpson Design page obvious italian influence sure is, is there anything else out there that that like any other influences that you've if you pulled in from outside of italy or is it primarily italian is what sparks your passion it's mostly italian because that's okay. that is where my passion lies i mean the italian masters of the 50s and 60s uh i mean even back into the 40s but the italian masters of that that was really the golden age of design in italy and uh, I actually got to, to go to Italy last May. My wife and I took a trip over and uh, got to see a, a lot of museums, got to visit a lot of things. I actually wound up getting a, a private uh, tour at uh, Ital Design, which was just magical. And we also got a, a private tour at Simi, uh, uh, which is actually a school of design, which uh, Jujero actually has been one of the, uh, the supporters of. Uh, I didn't get to meet Jujero, but I certainly got to meet Costanza, uh, who is the director of CIMI, uh, who's an amazing designer in his own right. And in fact, uh, the uh, recreation of the Momo Mirage 
was a car that Costanza was very much involved in uh, doing his apprenticeship. And he was quite shocked when I saw a small picture hanging on the wall. And it was a picture of a small piece of the Momo Mirage. And I went, oh, my God, that's the Momo Mirage. <laughs> and he was shocked that I recognized. How do you that. know that? Uh, How do you know that? Well, I've been stalking you for years. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that he had been involved in it. And he took me into his office and he showed me pictures of him as a younger man having been involved in that project and a lot of pictures of the Momo Mirage. Uh, That's awesome. I, uh, I was, of course, just completely blown away with that. Uh, but, you know, it was a neat thing. But anyway, one of the things that made me a little sad, and I came to realize it after we had gone to a number of different museums over there, uh, was kind of the Italian heyday is long gone, and a lot of the great Italian designers are gone as well. I think a lot of the designers are gone, and that was that touches on a question I was going to get to. Uh, you know, everything's designed by a computer today. Everything's you know pretty much generic, and however you want to make the arrow work for gas mileage, yeah. you know, it's all practical. You, the the cars you're creating, even if they're on a Miata or on a custom chassis or using, you know, they're d designed around some physical aspect of drivetrain sure. or suspension components. You had said that if you knew that the uh, California Art, um, I'm forgetting the name, Art and Art Center. Art Center existed, you would have went there. I Do you think you would have produced kind of the iconic? Because your cars are talked about, your cars, people know your cars. Uh, do you think? Which is actually very flattering, I have to tell you. You know, I, it's, for the longest time, we were really a well kept secret. Yeah. And that, like I said, that's where I, I go back to is I can't remember the first time I, I saw something produced from you, but it, ha it had to be when I lived either in Kansas or Illinois, and that's going back almost 20 years, uh, even 25 years. And I don't think you would have produced the same stuff if you would have went to a school and been Probably under the not. influence of the same teachers. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the best artists and the best designers – are people, and even the best musicians, are people that create without going through and being told they're wrong. Um, There's know, a lot of truth in that. Um, you know, Kevin Smith wouldn't be the famous guy he is now if he would have listened to film school instead of, or spent his money on film school as opposed to making a movie. Sure. Uh, you know, and I, th I feel the same, you know, here is you've, you know, you've got your influences, but everything's influenced off something else. And sure. you, you do, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the full size cars and the things you design, but on your Facebook page or on some of the fiberglass pages and, um, I, you create some of the most gorgeous little resin models in like 124th or, you know, 132nd scale type things, 116th. And, you know, <laughs> I sit there and I go, why isn't he 3d printing them or, but, but sh you you just have a way of creating a lot. So I think a lot of your designs will never see one month, but we'll see in a, you know, in one of those many display cases you've pictured in your office, you've got to have what a thousand little model cars. That you not a thousand in those display cases, but my overall collection, I mean, my house is full of models too. So. Uh, and I actually have a couple of containers that are full of models. There are people all over the world that would absolutely collect those like eight if if you turn those into not necessarily mass produced but beautifully produced 
Well, and I'll, and I'll just, you know, I'll give you a, a this is a shameless plug. Uh, most of my stuff is, is a little on the organic side because it's most of it's freehand carved. Uh, people say, Oh, do you 3d print that? Well, that's God. That's one of the highest compliments I could be possibly paid. And you know, my usual response is, is I wouldn't know which end of the 3d printer to plug in. I do. Um, and I'd be, I'd be glad to help you out. We could could definitely make that happen for you. And actually, uh, when it comes to having, uh, when, when we did the Swift, uh, I made a, I made a model first. I, I created a, a resin model and I actually sent it down to Dan Palatnik, uh, who's in Brazil. Uh, Dan speaks flawless English, which is very helpful for me because I speak precious damn little Portuguese. And uh, Dan is an absolutely terrific 3D illustrator and designer. And he took my model, which frankly, most of my models are not exactly symmetrical. Uh, they're, they're basically design models. They're, you know, they're, and I did a lot of these when I was doing work and design work for Mazda, I would get given projects and I would produce models. I produced a lot of them actually for Mazda. And, uh, you know, the idea is to produce something quickly that can be shown to people so they can hold something in their hand and get a little bit of a three dimensional idea of what something might look like. And, it's something I really enjoy doing. I, I tell people, quite frankly, it, it helps keep me sane. And usually when I make a model, I'll usually make a set because I do a master and then I do a submaster. And most times what I'll do is I'll, I'll pull a mold off the submaster and I'll make five or six of whatever I've done. And oftentimes I'll put a few of them out on eBay and sell them for, you know, they, they usually start out about 89 bucks. And, you know, sometimes they bring crazy money and some, sometimes they don't sell at all. I basically also know the slot car king of the world. We could we could have you running around 132nd and 124 sure. scale on slot car tracks all over the world. Oh, sure. That'd be um, fun. It's it's just – it's cool. And it does – like your models do remind me of – I still have a couple of my father's slot cars from the 60s. Like there's a, a Cox model that I have of his that it looks very hand-carved. It looks – yeah, it looks like that. Um that was actually taken from the Cox model. Was it really? Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's stolen. That's purely that's so, stolen. That's, and it's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, looking at you, I, I just just stumbled across the models. I didn't realize, and that's why I popped that picture up on my background. It's They're, they're really cool. Thank you. Really cool. Yeah, and those are the ones that you've actually, actually picked there uh, basically are all styling models. Uh, in fact, the one that is just above your left shoulder that you can see the convertible, uh, that was the original styling model uh, for the Italia 2. That's awesome. Now, the model you just showed, this is me looking at the irony of the show in the small world. It's basically, I don't know if it's a cheetah or inspired by a cheetah. That's a cheetah, yeah. I was say, I look like a cheetah. Yeah, that, that's the third time a cheetah's come up on this show in probably five episodes. They were just selling the molds and stuff, right? Weren't they just selling the, yeah, they, like they were just. I think that's a set of knockoff molds that were sold. There was actually a fellow uh, that was, this was, this was while uh, Dave Thomas was still alive, uh, was actually doing some cheetah replicas. And I met him at Carlisle uh, at the Kitten Import Show a number of years ago. And his cars were very neat. Uh, and they were, you know, they were relatively accurate. 
they were building their own sewer pipe tube chassis. And they, of course, had, you know, small block Chevys and stuff in them. Um, I, I came very close to buying one to do for myself because I thought it was such a neat car. It is a neat car. Um, if you like sitting over top of the rear axle, it's a neat car. Yeah, there is that. If, if that mm-hmm. doesn't bother you in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't bother me a bit. Okay. <laughs> All right, Don Garland. Have one. That is that is that is high on my list for uh, you know a vehicle that uh, the Corvette Museum is looking to acquire. So excellent, they're cool. There's there was actually a, a really interesting design that uh, showed up. Uh, I forget where. I'm sure it can be found out on on the internet somewhere. But there was actually uh, a design for a. Uh, Cheetah 2, basically, that would have been a production car, uh, a street car. Yes, yes. Yep. With going doors. Yep. That that one. uh, Yeah, there was some work done on that. Yeah, I don't don't know if I – yeah, I don't have that one over here. I actually started uh, freehanding a model of that at one point. I've never finished it, but I actually started freehanding a model of it because I was so fascinated with it. I would very much like the opportunity to drift a Cheetah just because that 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 would have to feel – so strange <laughs> they, they, you know, your pivot point or your your rotation point as you're sitting there on the rear axle and, and swinging way out it would feel like an amusement yeah. park ride it would oh, be amazing yeah and, yeah, and I, my understanding is the drive shaft on a cheetah is that like, like, <laughs> <laughs> non-existent it's basically transmission to the rear axle yeah it's two u-joints yeah <laughs> it's basically pretty awesome. close. yeah oh, that's awesome it's so awesome yeah Nothing wrong with that. No. No, transfer the power directly. Yeah. Give me yeah. all of it. Yeah. So where, where are we at, Don? Well, we're a little old. We're at about an hour and six. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm having a great time with the conversation, but we only we always ask an hour out of our guests. I feel like and, we could go for another six or seven, probably. <laughs> it was really funny. A number of years ago when uh, the uh, Keels and Wheels Concord got started in Texas, I had Blu-ray 1, Blu-ray 2, and I also had uh, one of the, uh, it was called a 350 uh, Testarossa uh, that was actually built by Chuck Ron in Arizona, and I had that car there as well, and Wild About Wheels decided to do uh, filming at the first Conqueror event, and the, the gentleman that was actually doing the uh, the interviews and whatnot came over and uh, asked me if I'd be willing to to be interviewed. I said, sure. And he said, do you have any problem being on camera? And I said, no. And after a, a handful of additional questions that he got kind of monosyllabic grunts out of me, he finally looked at me and he said, um, can you actually do an interview? And I said, ask the question and let me go. <laughs> At one point, they started the interview, and, and he did, and uh, his cameraman said, um, we've just burned through a half hour of tape. I've got to reload. And they did, and we proceeded to do another half hour, and he said, I need to reload again. Oh, and Blu-ray 3 was there as well. And uh, so I wound up basically with, with two and a half shows that were largely me nice well so, it's, it's 
so go ahead, John. I was going to say, you're such a, you know, I guess a wealth of car knowledge, such a diverse background. I mean, we could spend a whole show talking about your apprenticeships with Ferrari and your, you know, you're coming up and, you know, establishing your business. And technically, sure. we haven't even talked about your business. There's a whole nother show. Uh, your designs, your model. Well, I actually have two companies. Oh, so now we've got five, six shows to go to. So what, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know where to go or what to ask. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure glad Sean's here and Derek's here to, you know, help, help guide this interview. I'm just, like I said, I've always been impressed with your work and I'm kind of at a loss and to hear Very the story and the, and the background, it's, uh, interesting. Uh, I was Googling a little bit. Let me see if I can share a screen. I've never tried this here. It's at the the bottom of the uh, bottom of the Zoom window. Green button. Share screen. Dead center. And then you've got to actually choose which. Oh, there window you go. There's the Miami Roadster. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was coming up because somewhere today the uh, Miami Vice Ferrari and in, uh, in the air tonight came up on one of the uh, kit car pages. So. I talked about the McBurney and the history of the Ferraris on Miami Vice, and and then I, of course I had to watch Miami, start watching, binging Miami Vice today. So Tom and I are actually pretty good friends. <laughs> so the and I, I I said in my post, and this was four or five hours ago at least. I think his cars are are definitely the, the Miami Vice McBurney is a better looking car than the real Ferraris. And I'm sorry, Ferrari. For There's a lot of elements of it that are. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, it, you know, there's the lines and the Daytona is a gorgeous car, but I don't know if it's the headlight treatment that he does or what it, what's different about it. But I just think that car looks right. And that's kind of one car I would love to have. I've always said, I'd love to have a C3 Corvette because I can sure. travel the country in it. And if it breaks, I can go to AutoZone or, you know, yeah, advance get whatever, or whatever you and, mm-hmm. and buy parts for it. I yeah. can't do that if I travel in my Lotus or a Caterham or anything like that. And to but do uh, it, you know, to do it in a McBurney would just make it a little bit better because I'm doing it in a Corvette that's really not a Corvette. And I you know just me babbling on, but I had to go dig up and see how you turned a Miata into a Daytona. And I, I kind of like that one too, but here's a, here's kind of a, a I'll just give you a, a couple of fun things about it. Uh, I actually cast my own grills for that car and the bumpers are actually early Puma bumpers. The rear bumpers are in the wow. front of the Daytona and the rear and the front bumpers are actually on the rear. Uh, we didn't square the rear of the car off because the objective behind building this car was to literally create a body kit that could be done on the Miata that could be installed in two days with common household garage tools uh, by somebody that had never done anything like that before. There's zero cutting or welding. Oh, wow. How and, many of those, uh, how many of those hmm. kids made it out there? Three. Three. Okay. And, and one of them has been totaled. Uh, there was a company in Japan that bought one of the kits and supposedly it was knocked off in Japan, but you know, I, I've never really seen much. And we actually sold some cars in Japan for a while too. Um, but, uh, that was one that was kind of short lived. The Miata was too new when we did that car. Um, but I still have the red car and yes, it has pop-up headlights, uh, which uses the Miata headlight motor and different, 
uh, a different cam that I actually built for the car. Uh, and that car, literally, one of the places it got driven uh, to was Brainstorm Products in Atlanta years ago when I went to Carlisle. I drove the car from Houston to Carlisle and then drove by way of Atlanta coming back to Houston. That's a Miata. You could drive it around the world three times. Exactly. You'd be fine. Yeah. And the one major mistake I made with the car, we actually put a set of lowering springs on the car, uh, which as an early Miata, it honestly really didn't need. And it made the car really stiff, uh, too stiff, in fact. And most of the cars that we've done since uh, actually have stock factory springs and suspension under them. And I've gone out on many a racetrack uh, with Miata groups. And unless people have cars that, you know, have severely modified engines, they can't get away from me. You know, how much lighter are your, are your cars than than a factory Miata? How, how much weight do you drop typically off of? About 60 pounds. That's really all. That's okay. That's all. Okay. That's not as much as I thought it would be. It's not a lot. Yeah. I thought you were losing a couple hundred at least. Um, no. And one of the things I tell people is uh, – you know, one of the things you lose doing one of our bodies on your car uh, is you lose that two and a half mile an hour crashworthiness that comes from the factory. Mm. People say, oh, they're rated at five miles an hour. I say, no, they're not. They're rated at two and a half. So, uh, and, you know, and one of my wonderful sales tools, if you will, is, and when was the last time you planned an accident at two and a half miles an hour? No one's buying a Miata thinking this is going to keep me safe. Well, and, and if you they know, are, <laughs> lots of people that have totaled Miatas that have walked away from it. Yeah, totally true. But I mean, it's like, especially if you're going to track it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know what you're doing. So. You know what you're doing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Italia too again, and I'm the weird guy that looks at stuff like this. And I'm like, I could set that up for C Street prepared. Oh, God, yes. And, <laughs> and have so much fun and have people going, what the hell is that? Well, and what's kind of fun, and a lot of people don't know this, I mean, at this point, uh, we've done almost 200 cars. Have you really? Yeah, that we've rebodied. That's awesome. So Now, is that 200 Miatas you've rebodied? Because that was going to be one of my questions, is how many cars do you believe you've even built? Oh, because Well, I, I know that we've done, uh, we did 53 of the, uh, we called it the Rhino GT. That was basically... Uh, our slightly modified take on the McBurney GTO. And then ultimately Kevin and I wound up when we split up our partnership, which was very amicable. Kevin and I are still very much the best of friends. Uh, he owns a company in Bremen, Indiana with his son called special editions. And they're still doing the Beck spider. Uh, they're doing the Beck 904. And I guess they're doing the Lister as well. What? Uh, and we talk regularly like I said, Kevin and I have been the best of friends for many, many years. He wanted to move back to uh, Ohio, which is where his family was living uh, at the time. And I really didn't want to live in Ohio. And I wound up knowing that I was going to wind up moving to Washington State. And uh, so we decided to split the assets of the company. I was just starting to do stuff with the Miata at that point. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take all the Miata stuff. You take all the Porsche replica stuff. And you take the GTO project if you want. Where are you at in Washington State? Just so We're actually on Whidbey Island. We're about okay. 30 miles north of Seattle. Okay. Um, the slot car person that I was talking about earlier, it's a gentleman named Alan Smith. He's at the Scale Racing Center in Tacoma. Oh, okay, cool. And you and Alan would love each other. 
Yeah. <laughs> you, you absolutely like seriously. If you're ever in Tacoma, check him out. I'd you love to. You yeah, won't want to. You won't want to leave. Oh, <laughs> like, sure. You, it's he's got. I think he has three or four tracks in there right now. Like big, proper. Oh, wow. I, I we flew out there a couple of years ago and did uh, twelve hours of of uh, Washington with them. Wow. And they do, a, they do a 12 hour and a 24 hour event every year. And they have, weekly oh, racing. Cool. And I, I just, I can't help, but go back to your models and go, yeah, they, they deserve to be scale extrified. Well, and every day uh, somebody will, will, you know, email me and say, gee, I'd, I'd like to turn one of these into a slot car and I'll, I'll send them a light slush cast body so they can do it. Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome. Yeah. You and Alan need to have a conversation. I, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm like making business connections here. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so the other company uh, is called Contemporary Classics of Washington Incorporated, which actually owns Simpson Design. Uh, and that basically is the classic car side of the company. And if you go out to the Contemporary Classics, which is www.contemporaryclassicsofwa.com, um, you'll see actually there's a number of real Ferraris on there for sale. Uh, none of which I own. They all belong to one of my local clients uh, who actually is my best Ferrari client. Uh, and he's actually got a lovely collection. The guy literally is a billionaire and self-made. Uh, and he just really loves Ferraris. And he's got some really, really cool cars. That's his Daytona, which I got for him from a gentleman out of uh, Cincinnati. That's his 6,500 original mile uh, 512BB. That's actually my Skyline that I sold recently. Oh, that's cool. Uh, there, there's my Cosmo. You're going to make me want to get – I'm getting oh, on a plane. I'm getting on a plane. I'll see you tomorrow. The uh, Firebird was a rental <laughs> mod that we actually did for a guy overseas that he kind of bailed on the project. We recently sold that car, too. Yeah, I'm heading your way. You, you'd be more than welcome. We, we need to hang out more often, sir. <laughs> if you haven't already figured it out, I'm a gearhead. Welcome. I mean, we, we were we were on the fence whether or not you really enjoyed cooking or or cars. You know, I actually do all the cooking at home too. I do the same, so I'm I'm guilty there. But yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned music earlier. Uh, I've had a, a, a basically a barbershop style quartet, although we're a mixed quartet for the last 17 years, and uh, the international uh, barbershopping contests happen in various places around the United States every year. And several years ago, it was in Las Vegas. And uh, I was also in a chorus that got to compete at international that year. And I got to sing with a guy uh, that is an international champion bass. And we were woodshedding some tags and whatnot. I went, oh, sorry, that was that was really a wrong note. That didn't make a very good chord. And he said, no, there's no wrong chords. There's no wrong notes. There were just some that are more pleasing than others. And the same is true of design. And, right. you know, one of the things that I say regularly to people that, you know, that, that kind of get full of themselves on design is, you know what, there's no original shapes. Uh, all the shapes have been used in one way or another. What there are is original ways of combining the shapes. So a good designer recognizes that, you know, they are influenced by any design that they've ever seen. And one of the things that I always encourage people that want to do design work, and, and I've, I've talked at a number of different events, and I always tell people, you know, a couple of things you want to think about, particularly if you're going to do a rebody, make sure the greenhouse, because you don't want to have to start re-engineering glass. That gets very, very expensive. 
make sure the greenhouse of the car that you're starting with is conducive to the design you want to do. And if it's not, well, it's a good thing. Will isn't on the show tonight. <laughs> if it's not, then, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of going to shoot yourself in the foot right away. Um, a couple of the designs that appear on the Sim- on the Simpson design page, uh, we did an Aston-esque uh, design on the third generation Miata, which was a car that was requested by a client. He spent a lot of money having us doing that car, uh, and it's influenced heavily by a DB4 GT Zagato. And in fact, the headlight covers that are on the car are DB4 GT Zagato. Uh, and we, with the exception of the windshield, which I talked him out of on that car, Every other piece of glass in that car was made for that car. And we also did uh, kind of an SWB kind of a knockoff for him as well, also in the third generation Miata. And literally every piece of glass in that car, with the exception of the vent window, uh, was made for that car. And we spent $70,000 literally having glass made. And that was after me having made the initial tooling to send to the glass maker. So they had a starting point of what was going to wind up going in the car. Yeah, there's the Aston. And again, the objective was uh, he wanted an exact replica, which I had absolutely no intention of building. Uh, Although the grill material that's in that car uh, came from steel wings and was the last DB4 grill material at the time, that was in the country and I literally handmade uh, the grill surround and everything and, and fabricated that center section of grill to fit in that car so that he could have basically a DB4 looking grill. Uh, beautiful. Thank you. $70,000 worth of glass. Is that what you said? Yeah, but that was actually wow. for the, for the SWB because we actually, okay. Okay. Uh, we, in this particular car, I used the SWB side glass for the side windows, and then we had custom glass made for the quarter windows and a custom rear glass. So it cost us considerably less than than that for doing the glass for that particular car. Uh, the seats were actually made by a gentleman in Texas. Yeah, that's the SWB. That was the first one we did. The second one, frankly, was a nicer car. Although he was very insistent that we make a windshield that looked like an SWB windshield. Uh, we broke three windshields, finally getting a piece of glass in that car that, you know, basically sort of emulated an SWB windshield. And in fact, I still have sitting in the crate, uh, an original SWB windshield that I'd love to find somebody that wants to have. Uh, I can't even imagine trying to create a windscreen like that. And, and create it from scratch and keep optical clarity. That's the, that's the hard thing is, just keeping the optical clarity has got to be. It was interesting melted. to say the least. Yeah. I, I just, some manufacturers, some current manufacturers can't get that right. No. And, and, they're, the and they're mass producing it. So. We actually got the second one to take. And I went home and had dinner that evening, came in the next morning, and there was a split down the middle of the windshield. That's oh. the second one that we built. We actually built that one for a, uh, that's the interior in the first one that you just passed up in the, in the red. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Uh, and, you know, again, I took some license. The uh, the headliner in there was taken after the cars that were done in the 60s, you know, the pleated Ferrari-style headliner. Um, doing the diamond tufting on the seats, all of that was hand-done by the, the upholstery shop. 
they spent literally two days just making those padded sections that went down each side of the console. And you may have noticed in there that that actually has an automatic transmission in it again, which is what the customer spec. What um, they want, it's what they want. Exactly. I mean, the guy spent an incredible amount of money having us build that car. And we spent the better part of two years building that car. And I mastered that body in steel. And then we pulled tooling off of it and, you know, then built a composite body. Um, out of his over 100 car collection, that and the Aston were two of his favorite cars because he could drive them uh, and not worry about them starting and running and driving over in the Middle East. So remember the Royal family actually commissioned those cars. Wow. Ooh, the second one, that interior is, is closer related to a stock Miata third generation interior. We actually built that car uh, for a dentist that lives actually in Redmond, Washington. I love the color. And uh, yeah, he, I love the color. The color. That. That's actually a fleet color called Grenadier red. And I love the color so much that the original Swift got painted that color because I like the color so much and I'm normally not a red fan, but that dark red just completely captivated me. And I said, wow. And he wanted, uh, SWB bumpers on his car, uh, which we, he found a set of bumpers on eBay and he said, well, I found a set of bumpers for 2,500 bucks. And I said, you haven't bought them already. <laughs> I said, I can't make bumpers for 2,500 bucks. And amazingly enough, those original SWB bumpers, almost fit our car with precious damn little modification. Uh, I was quite shocked. Uh, so you have to be careful when someone says it's a perfect replica and you say, no, it's not. Well, maybe no, it is. really not. Although those, are, <laughs> those are correct. Uh, they were also used on alpha, but those front turn signal assemblies, which are glass lenses were actually used on early Julietta spiders. Uh, and then of course the teardrop side markers, uh, were made by a couple of different companies. The original ones, the early ones, were all made by Corello. And then another company in Italy, uh, ARIC, uh, made reproductions of the lights, which have been used by many restorers on, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis that they've restored for people. Uh, the last time we bought a set of those lights, I think we had to pay 180 bucks for a set of, basically, they were, you know, Italian reproductions of those lights. But, you know, they, they look right on the car. And, that sounds more than reasonable for... Yeah, you know, I tell people you only got to buy them once. You can't build them for that, that's for sure. No, you can't. And those front headlight bucket assemblies are actually Healy 3000 uh, reproductions that we bought from Moss Motors. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, part of... Uh, one of the fun things, having really been involved in cars for a lot of years, uh, I have a pretty good memory of the various componentry that had been used in cars. And, and one of the things I oftentimes say is the, you know, the original uh, production manufacturers of kit cars are Italian designers because when they're making limited production cars, they're pulling lights that were used on more commonplace cars off the shelf and door handles and door latches and things like that, which they don't want to have to produce limited runs of for a limited production car. Yeah. There's a uh, joke or a story about Colin Chapman and Lotus and that when employees would come to work at Lotus, they would park as far from the building as possible because he was known to wander through the parking yeah. lot and see like a door handle or a taillight and take it off the car and bring it in for yeah, exactly. design purposes. And, uh, you know, it's just. 
and why not? Well, I they're, mean, the, they're the, your employees' cars. But yeah, <laughs> but, the, the yeah. taillights on the uh, the Italia ones uh, were used on GT44s. Well, they were also used on the Lancia Stratus. And guess what? They were also used on the Fiat 850 Coupe uh, fact, and factory coupe sedan. Now that's that again. You know, a lot of my histories with Lotus, I spent over a decade restoring them and such. Everybody says, are the parts really hard to get? The body, everything well, else is, some, is somebody else's. You know, it's off a Triumph, it's off a Healy, it's sure. off an MG, uh, and that that's just it is repurposing other people's things exactly. in a way that works for you. And obviously, you're building gorgeous cars out of it. A lot of people don't remember that the early Lotus Europas, the Series 1 Europas, uh, basically had Lancia Flavia taillights. Uh, like the Series 1 um, Esprits have Fiat X19 taillights. Exactly. Right? So it's a... Exactly. But then that's Jujero, and, yeah. you know, that kind of stands to reason that he, you know, try to pull stuff off the shelf in Italy. Well, we're, I, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, Jim. I, I feel bad. I feel like I'm extending the conversation. So I think John's about ready to. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Thank you. Well, no, I understand. We're at an hour 30. We might sit around and talk some more, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap the show up here. Uh, Not a problem, Jim, guys. Jim's been, you know, fascinating. He's told a lot. This might be more of a video podcast than an audio podcast. And. We have videoed it, so I'll release this video on the YouTube channel. I'll skip the Patreon or anything, but I'll put this on the YouTube channel so you can go back because, again, we're talking to Jim about design and little aspects. And yeah, I we've only touched on stuff, honestly. <laughs> so, I, well, we're going to have to have you back, Jim. We're going to have to figure out to, how to get Jim back or... I'm working on another podcast, and Jim would be an ideal guest there, too. We'll, we'll find out. Honor, guys. Thank you. <laughs> but we'll thank him, and uh, I'm out of here for the night, guys. Take care. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Derek always says a Z word, but I don't know if he's here. He said that he's getting hit by a massive storm, so he, he may have oh. actually. I don't know whether. Are you still here, Derek? Nope, I guess he dropped. I think oh, he we lost Derek. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll say Zamboni for him and be out of here. <laughs> There's a wonderful reference. Every show.